Now, if you wait for a tube or a train or a bus in this uh, great city of ours, uh, you, know, you will know you get those helpful signs, don't you? You know, on those little things, it says five minutes and two minutes. I think it says that due, doesn't it? After that train, due, whatever it is. So we, we generally wait, don't we, expectantly, that uh, the, the tube will arrive at the time that is stated. I think we also probably will wait patiently because we know from experience that we can trust those signs sometimes. So our past knowledge and our future hope in what is to come defines, doesn't it, how we stand on that platform. Uh, it defines our waiting. Because how we wait for something indicates the knowledge you, that we have in what we're waiting for, but also uh, the hope we have in what we're waiting for. But what happens when you wait without hope? You know, what if we see no end? If, if we, experience tells us that while we're waiting, it, it is a hopeless wait, if you like. One particular man, whilst waiting for his wife to, to finish the weekly shop, um, felt such a sense of hopelessness in the supermarket that he found himself on a weekly uh, kind of times that, that on a number of occasions it caused him to wait in, shall we say, an interesting way. So much so that he and his wife received a letter from the manager uh, recording the antics of his husband that was spotted on CCTV cameras. The letter from the store manager said this. Now, actually, if you were at the men's convention yesterday, my, my dear friend completely nicked this off me. And, uh, but here we go. This is the letter that this uh, family got. Um, it said, Dear Mrs. Murray, whilst we thank you for your valued patronage and use of our store loyalty card, the manager of our store is considering banning you and your family from shopping with us unless your husband stops his antics. Below is a list of just some of the offences over the past few months, all verified by surveillance cameras. 2nd of July, he set all the alarm clocks in the housewares to go off at five-minute intervals. The 14th of August, he moved a caution wet floor sign to a carpeted area. On the, uh, the 4th of October, he looked right into the security camera and used it as a mirror to pick his nose. On the uh, 3rd of December, he darted around the store, suspiciously, loudly humming the Mission Impossible theme tune. On the 18th of December, he hid in a clothing rack and yelled, Pick me! Pick me! And on the 23rd of December, he went into a fitting room, shut the door, then yelled um, very loudly, There's no toilet paper in here! <laughs> Yours sincerely, the store manager. That is not how to wait, I think, appropriately. But Titus 2, I think, is teaching us how to wait appropriately. It shows us how we are to wait and also what we are waiting for. Practically, it shows us, that is Christians, because uh, that's what the letter's been, been written to. It shows us who we ought to be. And, and we saw that last week because it gives us an understanding and an incentive to be the person that we ought to be. And that incentive comes in the last, later verses of Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. Once again, Paul urges Titus towards that inseparable link that should be seen in all Christians. That link between how we are to behave and what we believe. Of course, as, a, as I've said each week, there is a modicum of pretense in all of us. But never should the insult of, or the, the, kind of the charge of being a hypocrite be hurled at the Christian. 
Which is why we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, um, that kind of opening uh, gambit there of um, what, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So that we would live aligned with who we are and what we believe. Now Paul's usual method is always to teach the doctrine first. That is to teach who God is and what he has done. He always puts that at the beginning of his letters generally. Um, He would then usually move on to kind of the lifestyle, the the living that comes out of that doctrine. It always kind of follows on as the sort of second part of his letters how we respond to God and how we respond to what he has done. But here in Titus, the therefore that would usually stand in the centre of one of Paul's letters is now replaced with the word for. Do you see that in chapter 2, verse 11, right at the beginning there? So you see the practical living and waiting of a Christian, it's been spelt out before in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. But now... We go on to see, if you like, what will motivate that living? What will motivate such a distinctive lifestyle? Well, here in verses 11 to 15, initiated by that four at the beginning of verse 11, we get the motivation in the form of a body of doctrine. Um, It is, Paul spells out not only God's character, but also his work, looking, of course, both to the past but also the promises of the future to come so that we can wait well today. So Christians, we wait in this life, but how? That's where we get to our our first point on on your outlines there. We wait looking back to the gracious appearing of Christ. It really comes in verse 11. There's a little bit of it in verse 14 as well. We'll look at that later, but... The Christian life is framed and should be moulded by Christ appearing. That is, Christ has appeared in the past and has promised one day that he also will appear again. Of all the hundreds of promises that we see in the Bible, there is one that remains to be fulfilled. And if you're willing to hedge your bet against that, well, that's a big one, isn't it? Christians, as we live and wait in the present, looking forward to all that is to come, we wait with a knowledge and also an intense security that has been established in what has happened in the past, in that gracious appearing of Christ. Now, in verse 11, it specifically speaks about the grace of God. Do you you see that there at the beginning? But that is not to say that the grace came into being when Christ came. God has always been gracious and he has made his grace known to all his people. That is his unmerited favour known to all of his people, all his whole creation. And in fact, every single person that has ever lived and breathed um, has experienced the grace of God. We all live in his beautiful creation. We breathe the air that he has supplied and sustained and sustains us with. We all enjoy every single person's whole creation enjoys a measure of God's grace, of that undeserved kindness. That's often described theologically as common grace. It's common to all of this creation. But the grace of God that brings salvation, that we hear of in verse 11 here, that is so much more. It has appeared, as we see to all men, but as we know, sadly, not all have appreciated this undeserved gift. 
Now, I've, said, I've, I've assumed that we're, we're speaking of Christ here. You know, Christ appearing on, the, on this earth is, is what has been spoken of here. I'll explain why more in a moment. But in his appearing, in his incarnation, his coming to this earth, in taking on human flesh and becoming a man, he has appeared. And appearing is... is we get the word epiphany from that, actually, uh, if, you, if you want to know what that kind of slightly churchy word meant. But that is what we're talking about here. It's an epiphany. But that is not to say that Christ was not before, that he did not exist before he appeared. He has always been and has eternally existed as the second person of the Godhead. He was, of course, there at the beginning of creation as the word of God that fashioned the beauty and the design of this creation. So in saying that Christ has appeared, in a sense, it's as if the, the sun has appeared over the horizon. It was always there, the sun. It's just now that it, as it rises over the horizon in the morning, we see its beauty more clearly. And we feel its heat, its power more closely. And as Christ appeared... He lovingly comes to bring clarity, to make clear how we can know and how we can experience the wonderful, saving, powerful grace of God. Now, of course, at his birth, we saw the grace of God clearly displayed in Christ. He came as Emmanuel. He was God with us. God in his grace chose to make his dwelling amongst us, John 1 says. The eternal, sovereign creator of the universe who fashioned all the vast galaxies of the sky in our solar system that are, that are way too many to kind of even fathom. That God, the only God, came, he appeared as one of us, taking on human flesh to show us with clarity who God is and what we need to do to know him and be with him for eternity. That is the grace of God shown in Christ in this appearing, this coming to the world. But even that, if that weren't enough, even that gracious appearing is overshadowed by the grace of God shown as Christ appears and he lives a perfect life and he dies a death on a Roman cross. It is the death of Christ in this gracious appearing that brings salvation, that should be our focus. For that is the supreme grace of God that brings salvation. As Jesus was sentenced to death and passed on from the Jews to to Pilate and lastly to the Roman soldiers for crucifixion, yeah, they could mock him. They could beat him. They could spit on him. They could flog him. But no one could condemn him. I mean, not one person could bring any sense of charge against him, even his greatest enemies. And when Jesus was brutally nailed to a cross, he hung there, gasping for breath in agony as someone who had never lied, someone who had never been unfaithful, someone who had never, ever gossiped or anything like that never lost his temper, never lacked self-control in any shape or form. He hung there, as the Bible would say, 
as someone who had never, ever sinned. Christians, we wait in this life looking back and we should be in awe that God would give his perfect, only beloved son to die a death that I deserve and you deserve. To suffer a punishment that I should face and you should face because you have turned your back on God. The physical pain, of course, was excruciating, but the greater burden for Jesus that he bore on the cross was that spiritual agony of taking on himself all the justice and the righteous anger of God on himself that I deserve and you deserve. We wait looking back at the gracious appearing of Christ. As God speaks to us through his word, the Bible right now, and his spirit works in our hearts, I guess we are all prompted to remember, aren't we, that we wait today, in the present time, for the future amazingness to come. But we wait as those who are eternally secured in the past for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The undeserved kindness has been poured out for us, overwhelmingly being poured out as Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross. And a Christian is simply someone who puts their trust in that historical event. Sorry, I've been using that as a future and that as a past, so I'll keep on that left hand for the past, shall I? I'm going to get confused, but there we go. Yeah, someone who, a Christian is someone who's put their trust in that historical event in the past, believing that God has um, punished all of our sin on Jesus on the cross, and that appearing has brought salvation. Now you see, the world that we live in is utterly obsessed, not with, but with today. And actually that is, by definition, secularism. The Christian, though, is someone, yeah, who enjoys today, but our days waiting in this life are defined by our looking back. And that is why so often I remind us, and I have to remind myself as a, as a self-discipline, to get your heads in the Bible. Pray to your heavenly Father. Because, because we too easily forget, don't we? We are too secular. When we wake up, we need to go to work with the knowledge that we are saved by the grace of God, that gracious appearing of Christ. What if you sit here and you consider yourself not a Christian? Well, can I first just say, you are so welcome amongst us. It is great to have you here. I hope you can chat with us afterwards. There's some amazing cakes. I've tried them all. But can I also say to you, you're in the right place. And... I haven't got all the answers, but the good news that you've just heard of what Jesus has achieved on the cross, that's what you need to hear. It's simple, yes it is, but it is utterly amazing. You need to know that God loves you more than you even love yourself, and that's saying something. And I want you to know how much God loves you, and by just looking at Jesus, take the time to invest in him and most importantly, he has shown you, God, as how you can be saved from the justice that you deserve. And facing an eternity, essentially on your own, facing all that justice.
So let me encourage you, look at Christ. He has graciously appeared. Trust him and what he has done. Christians, if you're a Christian here today, we wait to find, molded by that gospel, that gracious appearing of Christ. Secondly, we wait looking forward to the glorious appearing of Christ. We see that more in verse 13. Now our lives, as we've said, are are living. All that was mentioned in verses 1 to 10, and that was a pretty heavy passage, wasn't it, last week? All of that is moulded by the past, but it is also moulded by what is to come as we look forward. Look at verse 13 with me, if you can. So while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now we will, of course, look at what comes between these two appearings of the past and the future um, in a moment. And we will see how we are to wait. That comes at the end. But firstly, I want us to see what defines our lives by showing that both the past, but also now the present, um, sorry, both the past and now the present have a saving significance. Sorry, the future has a saving significance and should mould us today. So, of course, one secures our salvation. We see that in verse 11, don't we? It brings salvation. But also in verse 13, it finalises our salvation as we meet face to face our God and our Saviour. There's a saving significance in both the past and the future. You see, when Christ appears again, everyone will know it. Everyone will know that his appearing is about salvation. If you want to see the scope of it, read something like Mark 13. The scope of the glory of his appearing. Read 1 Thessalonians 4 and you'll see that there's no way that you're ever going to miss out on this. It would be the trumpet call of God, 1 Thessalonians 4 says. And no one will be saying, was that a car horn or a gun going off? Or any kind of speculation speculation like that. They'll be going, okay, I get it. People, I guess, will respond in two ways. Hence, they will understand this sort of saving um, element of Christ's second appearing. I guess they'll respond in two ways. That either they'll lift their heads with a smile on their face and, and realize the wait is over. Or they will cower and bow their heads and probably drop to their knees and realize the wait is over. See, when Christ appears... In his glory, the Bible promises that justice will come. And either you will be judged according to the way that you have lived and the way that you have thought and acted. And I guess if I look at my life, if that were the way I were judged, I'd be found wanting. Or you will be judged according to the way that Christ has lived because you've put your trust in his life and his death on the cross. And at that point, God will see you as the pure, spotless um, son of God. That life will be counted as yours. But that glorious appearing, does it seem too distant at sometimes? Often that is, isn't it? Because our focus becomes so dominated by the present, doesn't it? The day-to-day living. We can so easily begin to lose the perspective of the blessed hope that verse 13 mentions it, that, you know, that we should enjoy as Christians. 
once again we become too secular. If our present lives consume us, if, if you find that all you think about today is your job, and tomorrow morning, the commute, maybe perhaps the relationship you're in, or the struggle, or the, the relationship you want, or, or just the, this, the illness that you're going through, whatever it may be, if you find that those things consume your life, the now, the day-to-day, even if you wake up tomorrow, even if you actually expect to wake up tomorrow morning in your bed, then perhaps you need to question, are you more secular than you perhaps ought to be? Is the blessed hope just out of your mind completely? The Christian, as we struggle to live in a way that honours the salvation brought for us through Christ, we need to be defined, but also refined by what is to come. We need our minds to be informed of all that is to be. But we also need to engage our hearts and and dwell on the joy and the privilege and the immensity of spending an eternity with God. And God has given us all sorts of helps in that. Images of the glory that is to come or heaven and the new creation that that awaits us. They're, they're, They're sort of splattered throughout his word. There are amazing pictures articulated in apocalyptic words. So that, you know, they're to be taken as, yes, images as such, but they're attempting to describe something that is too great, too eternal, too big to be adequately described in human terms. So the Bible talks about glory because that's God's character. We're we're going towards glory. We've sung about that already tonight. But that's because we'll be consumed in his glory. For eternity. It's described as a, in an eternity, in an eternal way, in every perspective, height, depth, and duration. You can't get your head around that. I tried to describe it the other day to my youngest son, Zach, what infinity was. That took a long time. In fact, an eternity. And it's described in more human terms, which is really helpful in the Bible, of a great banquet of a marriage uh, you know, kind of banquet as well, an, an eternal house, a perfect body, a new creation. I mean, why don't you read that tonight when you get home? Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, you'll just see the beauty of the apocalyptic language of the, the river of the water of life flowing through, flowing through the, you know, the new creation with all the beautiful stones and gemstones and the great white throne. It's just amazing. It captivates you. And what's that place like? Flip back one chapter. Chapter 21, and you'll get to the no crying, no pain, no mourning, and most importantly, no death. I've not treated anyone really. My favorite um, hymn as a child um, speaks of this brilliantly. It's it's the last hymn of my funeral, where you'll all be celebrating, but there we go. Um, And the last verse of my favorite hymn, My Jesus, My I Love Thee, um, says this. In mansions of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. And I'll sing with a glittering crown on thy brow. And if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Is that a blessed hope? If you have trusted in Christ, it should be. And if you do not know what I'm referring to here, or you have you do not have that hope in your hearts. Find out more. 
But if you are Christians here today, do not take your eyes, your heart, your minds off the glory to come. So secondly, we wait looking forward to the glorious appearing of Christ. And lastly, and more briefly, we wait living right in the light of Christ's appearing. I know the grammar is terrible there. You don't need to tell me. But I quite like it, so that's all right. Looking back, of course, we wait in utter security. Looking forward, we wait with anticipation in excitement. But in doing so, those two elements inform today and the present Grace from God not only saves us in Christ, but it also teaches us. As one scholar put it, we become learners in the school of grace. Grace bases all her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made and finds all her teaching power in those mighty memories. So you see in verse 12, the grace of God shown in Christ, it teaches us today. There's an element of looking back which, which moulds, refines today. Look at verse 12. It teaches us to say what? No to ungodliness and worldly passions and positively to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So there's this negative that the past teaches us to say no. Uh, And there's the positive. Uh, As Christians, we, we live in a certain way. The grace shown us in Christ dying for us teaches us and disciplines, helps us to discipline ourselves To, as Colossians says, put off. Say no to some attributes and and tendencies in our lives. Does that mean that God is a spoil sport? I was um, Al Stewart yesterday at the men's convention, very well put put brilliantly. He said, does that mean that the the church and and the Bible is kind of like the fun police? So saying no to anything that is good and exciting in our lives? I don't think so. I think it means... We will want to live a life that is pleasing to the one who has saved us for all that is to come. The word here for ungodliness is translated elsewhere. You'll probably know it better from Romans chapter 1 verse 18, and many of you will know that verse. There it just describes it as a godlessness. It describes a life either in hostile rebellion to God, just saying, I don't want anything to do with you. Stuff off God. Or it equally describes a life which just says, oh, I'm going to ignore you, God. I'll do things my own way. That is that godlessness. See, just to put it into our lives, you don't ignore the boss at work, do you? You don't blank them in the corridor. If you want a future with that boss in years to come, and maybe to go up the little corporate ladder or whatever you know, ladder you're on, you don't just sort of blank them. At all, do you? Do you expect any less with God? Look at the cross and learn. Remember who you are. And that teaches you to say no to things today. That ungodliness in all of our lives. The worldly patterns follow, as it says in it, they follow the godlessness. They're the natural consequence of ignoring God. Literally, they are... The word is it's fleshly patterns, essentially. Basically, you do what you want. I feel like doing this because I've got this feeling inside. I'll do it because I want to. You're essentially doing it with no reference to God whatsoever. Christians, be taught by the grace shown us on the cross and learn to say no. 
Positively, though, and note that the two work together in this verse. If you just say no, that what you find, and I guess you do, all of us do this in our lives, if you just say no, that your default is you've, you're left with a void. You used to do that. You said no to it. There's a void in your life. Well, I'll just default and go back to that. Thank you very much. Do you recognize that in your life? You're trying to stop a particular thing. And if you just say no to it, you can do it for a while. But after a while, you just default back to it, unless you replace it with something which you love more. So that's why he says positively here, yeah, live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now self-control, it's, it's throughout the whole book of Titus. And, and essentially it's used as a, a kind of a catch-all word that everything flows from it. And literally it means self-mastery. It means, it means just taking responsibility for every aspect of your life. Your thought behavior, the way that you live, what you do. And it probably means practically putting things in your life, steps in your life to make sure that mastery means I'm going to control myself in this. It means I won't go to that place. I need to do that with my phone, do that with my computer, and maybe not watch TV after that time. It means being very practical. It's a mastery. We all know where we fail. But again, what's teaching us in that? is to look back at the cross. See what Jesus did for you. Look what is in store and all the glory to come and respond today by saying no and positively living in a way that pleases the one who saved you for all to come. Why? Well, firstly, because God is no spoil sport. And everything you enjoy is actually more enjoyable God's way. Sex, relationships, drink, work, leisure. God invented them all. He knows what he's talking about with all of them. Secondly, because you'll want to live in a way that pleases your saviour. Because when your life is aligned with what you say and, and, and what you believe, you become so much more attractive to the world out there. Now, one uh, theologian put it this way. If the gospel is a precious jewel and the Christian life is like the setting for that precious jewel, when you put those two together, it, it, it brings such a, a, a greater beauty to that jewel. It, it gives it more luster, I think the theologian said. It makes it shine out. Simply, if you live for Christ in a way that is obvious to the world around you, you adorn Christ to the world around you. Verse 14 continues on a similar vein, speaking of the, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour. And, and from verse 13, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the one, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Loads of Old Testament language is employed here. And Christ gave himself, you see that? Literally, it means he sacrificed himself there, the language is. Meaning, he's actually pointing back to saying, hey, I'm the true Passover lamb. That was, that's where he's pointing back. He's using language from the Old Testament. He says he redeems, is that rede- redemption language there, out of slavery. Now, he's not talking about the, the slavery in Egypt, but talking obviously here about our slavery to sin. That is our wickedness, which he points out here in verse 14. What, so, so that we can become what? A treasured possession, or as he puts here, a purified people for himself. He's taking all this kind of Old Testament, Mount Sinai language there, and bringing it into uh, the, the, the New Testament church. 
So Christians, we are God's special people. He loves us. And and from here he's saying, we are his treasured possession. And he made this union possible through that blood sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, that is namely Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to purchase our freedom, to be with God for eternity. See, God's people are people who are eager to do what is good. We're not fanatics. That word is literally enthusiasts. And we're enthusiastic to live for him because he died for us and brings us to glory. So you see, just to summarise it to end, we live in between times. I guess you've heard that phrase before. Suspended rather uncomfortably between the what has already been achieved and secured on the cross and what is to come in glory. And if you focus too much on either of the past, present or the future, then you will find yourself in pretty much disarray. You see, if you, if you focus too much looking back, that seems a great thing to do, doesn't it? Focus on the cross, just the cross, let's do that. Then you'll end up dry in doctrine. You'll be sound, but you'll be lifeless. You'll be understanding your saviour, but you'll have no uh, passion to commend your saviour today and no joy in seeing your saviour face to face tomorrow. What what happens if you focus too much on today? If you're essentially secular, you'll be defined by today, won't you? Your your struggles and your joys of today and your ambitions and your loves and your disappointments, they will be the thing that will mould you. Oh, you may have some fun, but it will lack. For you will ignore the creator of fun and his good purposes for that fun. What about if you focus too much on the future? Church history has taught us a lot about this, actually. If you do, you'll you'll, you'll begin to uh, ignore the one who secured the future, namely Jesus Christ. You may even begin to distort him, ignore him, distrust him. Life today will just become a means to that end, not a life to live. Christians, the best way to live now is to do spiritually what is physically impossible. That is, look in opposite directions at the same time as you wait in this life in the present. We need to look back to the gracious appearing of Christ on the cross and look forward to the glorious appearing of Christ. Do this daily and you will wait rightly. Today, tomorrow and all the days that are your number. I've got time to finish off, but teach these things in verse 15. Let's read that verse. Because we should do all of us to each other. Teach then. These then are the things you should teach. So go and do that to each other. Encourage where needed. Rebuke with authority where needed. And do not let anyone despise you for your focus on the past and the future glory to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look back to your gracious appearing on the cross, we are just overwhelmed. That is totally undeserved 
and what you achieved for us and secured for us is just so amazing. Thank you. And as we look forward, again, that we just get glimmers in your word and they are just beyond belief sometimes. And we want to thank you for all that is to come. Lord, we thank you that we are secure as Christians in all that is to come. But if there are anyone here, if there is anyone here who does not know that security, that blessed hope of verse 13, then may they just inquire, ask more questions that they might know, as so many of us do here, of the utter joy and security of living today, knowing the future hope and glory to come. Lord, we thank you for all that you've achieved and done for us. We don't deserve it, but we want to live in thanks for all the, for just to respond in how much you've loved us. Amen. Well, in the light of what Andy just spoken about, I'm grateful uh, and I'm grateful. Uh, why do we stand and sing our last song? Um, and this is a song uh, which is a call for this.